from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I mean, you could play Pops and you can play the Galaxy, but it always was a goal to play Mississippi Nights. Um, we even like did our album release show there back in 2006. I would get down there at 1 o'clock and hang out on the sidewalk with my friend playing cards. And How many times did they play? Did you, 11, uh, okay. 11 times. Yeah. And did you just find that right in the book? I we can look that up? I did. There is a list of all the bands in the back who played Mississippi Nights uh, that we could find. Oh, that's so we, cool. We did get the uh, calendars from the office. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Mississippi Nights was an essential piece of the region's live music scene for 30 years after opening in 1976. The club could fit about 1,000 people, but it hosted thousands of bands, including some legends who played there early in their careers before getting huge. It's the only place Nirvana ever played in St. Louis, and people still talk about that one. And if you were really on the ball in 1977, you could have seen ACDC play one of its first U.S. concerts there before they rapidly outgrew the place. Garrett Enlow and Stacy Enlow have written a book about the legendary club. It's packed with photos, archival stuff like ticket stubs, vintage ads, and lots and lots of memories. Joining me in studio to talk about Mississippi Nights, the his- a history of the music club in St. Louis, are its authors, Garrett Enlow and Stacy Enlow. Garrett and Stacy, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank Hi. you. Thanks for having us. Uh, so when did you, does your history with the club precede your history with each other? When did you first go to a show there? Yes, it does. My first show was in 1989 there, and we met in 1994. Yep. So, at a different at a different club, right? At we, a different venue, we met at the American Theater. I like to say we we met on the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> Very romantic. <laughs> uh, do you have vivid memories, um, Garrett, from uh, from attending shows there? Uh, Mississippi Nights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw fight there with Rob Halford. Rob Halford's not on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, mostly heavy metal stuff, but um, lots of good times at Mississippi Nights. And then uh, we, me and Stacy met, and uh, I think one of our first real dates was seeing Bent at Mississippi Nights in 1997. Bent with Helmet. Yeah. And uh, we were together for only a couple weeks when we went to that one. Right. A little romantic bent music, right? Just <laughs> cue it up on the anniversary. Um, maybe. Um, I think Rob Wagner would like that. <laughs> well, a show that a lot of people bring up when they talk about the, the venue's greatest hits is, is that ACDC one. Mississippi Nights is one of the first places they played in the U.S. We haven't been able to find any audio from that night, and maybe you've tried and failed also. But, but just for a taste of what they sounded like at that moment in time, um, here's a bit from a show um, just a couple weeks later. And again, a different crowd, but gives you a sense of the size of crowd that might have been there. Have you talked to any uh, anyone who was at that show? Yeah, the uh, the person that we interviewed for the book was at the show, and uh, and in other books they talk about the the Mississippi Night Show, but but in our book, since we had somebody 
with their own eyes see the show. There was a little fight after the show, so we got that in our book correctly compared to the other ACDC books that you know talk about setting the record straight about the post ACDC fight. Yeah, there was a little fight. Uh, right. What L- happens is little Angus Young managed to drop a security guard after they were trying to shoo the ladies out at the end of the night. <laughs> yeah. So we're we're really proud that we have the story correct in our book. <laughs> what what did people uh, not understand about that for years? Oh uh, well, they think more happened than actually happened. Just like the Nirvana story, there was issues at that show too, and we got it correct. So. I'm very, very happy about that. And uh, before, when ACDC was loading in, the band was uh, running into the walls and the, the owner had to tell them to relax because we, we just opened the place and that's new paint and stuff like that. And uh, we were happy to be able to talk to the owner before he passed away. Um, so we got a lot of good information about the first version of the club. Right, from Steve Dugabais yeah. and Tom Duffy, the other co-owner at the time. And a couple of musical generations later, um, Nirvana's one St. Louis show during that band's short time was here. And what do people remember from that show? And what do people misremember from that show? Well, the, um, the story that Dave Grohl was saying was uh, there, there was a full-blown riot. But when we, sp- when we spoke to people who attended the show, there was no riot. And uh, Kurt Cobain kind of kept everybody relaxed. Uh, everybody did get on the stage towards the end of the show, but... It wasn't as dramatic as how everybody had said it was. Right. Uh, Kurt had gotten uh, upset at uh, the security. They weren't uh, treating the patrons real well. They were jumping up on the stage and whatnot. They were getting a little rough with them. And uh, when one of them managed to unplug his uh, equipment when he was up there, he got really mad. And that's when they invited everybody up onto the stage <laughs> as a protest. And it, they, it started to get a little bit out of hand, but then uh, Chris Novoselic came out and calmed everybody down and uh, got the band back out to play again. So It was funny, too, because the uh, owner saw what was going on, and he locked himself in the office so that he wouldn't have to interfere with, uh, you know— he, I think he was watching the money is what he told me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he locked himself in a room with the money? Yes. Uh, is this a every everyday life running a club like Mississippi Nights? Um, maybe not every day, but once in a while, well, things that, get a little out of hand. That, that's where we went with the book. Uh, we we want Everybody comes up to me and wants to open up a club, and I'm like, well, this is some of the problems you're going to have. You know, there's a story about uh, the club getting sued for $1 and uh, – so, Who you know, sued the club for one dollar? <clears throat> um, it was the uh, Roxy Music concert in um, um, 1979. It was, <laughs> right. It was originally supposed to be at the Keel Auditorium, and uh, it got switched venues at the last minute because it didn't sell so well. Mm. So they moved it to uh, Mississippi Nights, which hold, held 600 people at that time. And um, Mississippi Nights was not an underage club at that time for most shows because it was so small, and one of the ladies that was supposed to go got really upset that she couldn't see Roxy Music, so her dad was a lawyer, and uh, they decided (laughs) to sue. They sued him for $1, (laughs) and uh, it was in the Post-Dispatch. I'm sure Contemporary doesn't remember that, but I just thought that was kind of funny, so we included things like that so you can get an idea what it's like to have a club. You know, uh, it's not all fun. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, let's let's keep it real cuz cuz a lot of people develop maybe a sentimental memory of a departed rock club uh 
when on a given night back in the day, maybe you were your feet were sticking to the floor. There was a weird smell. Maybe yeah. uh, just putting all this history aside, just going to a, a show there on a given night. How was it as a venue? What was it like? Uh, you kind of had to uh, behave yourself at Mississippi Nights, oh. and I think it had to do with the security. You know, if we were going to Club Three Sixty Seven or something, it was kind of like you could keep your hair down, but. I, I thought Mississippi Nights had more class than the rest of them. That when I talked to Rich Frame, he's like, "We had class," so <laughs> I think it did. I mean, didn't you feel that way when you were going there? I, I did. The the sound quality was just so great in there, and um, being real close to the bands was one of the most amazing things because you could get right up in front, which is what I usually did. Got, the, got, that was got your there spot early. Down on the floor. Yes, and I'm I'm five foot, so I needed to be able to see. Yeah. <laughs> so I would get down there at one o'clock and hang out on the sidewalk with my friend playing cards, and and uh, that's how I met her. In. When I met her, uh, she brought cards. I think I had a little radio, so it was just it was perfect, you know. <laughs> waiting around pre-show. Wait, right. wait, waiting to get yeah. in. Wait, this, this is before cell phones, young people. <laughs> <laughs> Something so. I learned from the book was um, it was known for good sight lines, though. Is that right, Stacey? Uh, yes, you could see really well just about anywhere you were in the club. And there was an architectural feature that contributed to that, the floor? Uh, yeah, um, that's why the Guar stories in there. Guar is a band that has fake blood and, and things like that. So when they're using the fake blood, it, it drains out of the club. And then I kind of connected that with the fact that it was a slaughterhouse in the 1800s, and that was draining blood. I thought that was interesting. So that's why I, I had a very hard time trying to word that. You know? Right, the blood, <laughs> the blood would flow right out the back door. <laughs> and that's, that's why the, the floors were the way they were, but it worked so perfectly. at an angle, was that the idea? Yeah, right. so it worked perfectly for um, seeing a concert. And, you know, that's... So a slaughterhouse is a good candidate for reuse as a rock club or a music I, club? I don't know, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I know bowling alleys are not good, and that, that happens for some reason. I've been to a couple of clubs that are converted bowling alleys, and that's kind of the opposite of what you want in terms of yeah. sight lines. Well, club 367 used to be a movie theater, so that worked real well. But yeah, bowling alleys, that's, that's you know, yeah, I don't that, know. Yeah, I could see how that wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we asked listeners to, to call in with some stories they might have for Mississippi Nights. And we heard from uh, Chris Ryan, a listener, and uh, he had different experiences there. Here's, here's what he remembers. I started seeing shows there in like the early 2000s before I could drive. Um, my friends and our parents would like drop us off in front. We'd wait in, wait in line outside all day to get the closest spot. And, you know, sometimes we'd stay at the hotel across the street. It was just always a super fun time when we would go. Um, but eventually my high school band at the time we started playing shows there regularly and it was like, a dream come true for all of us. Um, we even like did our album release show there back in 2006 and we were super young. So back then we just learned a lot about performing and promoting concerts and, and all that stuff. And I can really say that like I had Mississippi nights to thank for a lot of that. There was just so much history in that room. Um, it, it was just so devastating. And especially for me, it was like such a sacred place for, for me and all my friends. We would just play there all the time. So um, yeah, I mean, it definitely left a big hole in the, in the St. Louis scene, but yeah, I'm 34 now still in a band. We're called Star Wolf. We're still super active and, um, release a new album next year. And yeah. So thanks for Sippy Nights. Miss yeah. you. 
Listener and musician Chris Ryan talking about what it meant to play the venue as a local band. We, we like to talk about the stories of the, the big bands before they made it big, but what place did it have in sort of the, the food chain of local venues for artists working in town here? Oh, there was always a goal for them to play Mississippi Nights. So uh, even coming up with the book, when I would hear how passionate people were, or I had people crying talking about Mississippi Nights, so I came to Stacy. I said, I think we should write a book about this. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you could play Pops and you can play The Galaxy, but it always was a goal to play Mississippi Nights. And uh, quite a few of our friends sold out the place, and that, that's the highlight of their life, you know? Right. It was even important for bands that lived out of town, like in Chicago. They would trade shows with uh, people who played Mississippi Nights, and they would open for them in Mississippi Nights, and then those bands would go and open for them out in Chicago. So and I think a lot of that had to do with uh, Pat Lacey, who provided she she provided the food and she was like a, a grandmother to all the bands so even the, the big touring bands would come through and they would they would know that there would be good food there and it would good, be good hospitality and stuff like that right you know. she would take good care of them tim mullins hum, home cooked the food and pat made sure they were taken care of well there's even one uh a, a guy who owned another club we won't get into that but he took some of the Mississippi Nights food and brought it to the club for the next night for the bears <laughs> at his club. But we won't get into that right now. There's plenty of things I heard, you know, writing this book that we won't talk about. <laughs> so backstage food at Mississippi Nights travels well. I, I assume. Apparently. And the funny thing was the next night this guy witnessed him gathering up the food and then he played that club the next day and he recognized the food from the night before <laughs> anyway I'm, I'm drifting off here <laughs> it's a small world small uh, music scene sometimes oh, it in was, St. Louis hilarious right. we're actually going to take a break I am here speaking with Garrett Enlow and Stacy Enlow about their book Mississippi Nights A History of the Music Club in St. Louis uh, you're listening to St. Louis on the Air Welcome back to St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. I am here with the authors of a really fun book about the club Mississippi Nights, Garrett Enlow and Stacey Enlow, and uh, a band that fits in the category of, of local group and band that got a really big profile is Uncle Tupelo, uh, fronted, of course, by Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy. The, there's some lots of video of theirs circulates online, some, sh some video from a show at Mississippi Nights in April 1994 is out there, and here's a little bit of it. This is Uncle Tupelo at Mississippi Nights playing New Madrid. For her, that's enough. They all come from New York City. with me to the fountain 
Was Uncle Tupelo a regular presence at the club? <laughs> uh, yes, they were. They weren't as regular as some other bands, but they played there quite a few times. I think it might have been about 10. Hmm. Did, Are, did you notice the flyer in the book with Uncle Tupelo? Uh, we have Napalm Death and Uncle Tupelo on the same page. And you was can't that the get, same bill? You can't be further apart. It was the same year they played there. Okay. You know? Um, actually, I'm not too familiar with them since I am a heavy metal guy. Okay. Um, but um, we are. F- uh, they they did make it big on the scene. Oh, how many times did they play? Did you eleven? Uh, okay. Eleven times. Yeah. And did you just find that right in the book? I we can look that up. Did there is a list of all the bands in the back who played Mississippi Nights uh, that we could find. Oh, that's so we, cool. We did get the uh, calendars from the office. That listed all of mm. all the bands when they played. So, and if you're wondering, that took us seven months to to do that <laughs> uh, to create that index, <clears throat> the, right. the list in the back. Uh, this is stuff nobody was going to do if you didn't do it. It seems like there's there's a few things in the book that I don't think's ever been done in a rock and roll book, and that's to have the list of all the bands, and we have the employees, and um, mm. right. And some other things, but the employees were the hardest ones because you know there's there's employees on there that we just have their first name and there's no last name, so we <laughs> wow. tried our best. Spike <laughs> doorman, right? Just regular old. I think there's Donna with no last name. But, but we decided to keep them in anyway because everybody that worked there was so important to give us you know, the experience that they provided at Mississippi Nights. It sounds like just so many memories will be jogged for folks who've been there. Yeah, that's um, really cool. But learning the history, I didn't. Ha- I was not in the area in time to catch that venue. I had heard of it. I know one of my favorite band, Fish, played there in the in the very early nineties. Yes. Um, but looking through the book, it's it's just so inviting. It's it's so lively and it, it, it thank really you. Put together something. It's very user friendly. Thank the you. The thing about Fish and Dave Matthews, if you want to kind of tackle that genre, um, when they play there, it was five bucks. Hmm? And you look at Fish now, and I mean, they have festivals on weekends where. 60,000 people show up so it's 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 incredible you know right and we think the book appeals to anybody who loves music not just anybody who went to Mississippi nights so and we're talking a lot about rock bands but the club had a an eclectic uh, round of offerings right very eclectic we had they had country and jazz and the ska yeah um, uh, one one group that rich frame turned well artists that he turned on was uh, Johnny Cash Right mm-hmm. when he when he did the Hurt song around two thousand and one two thousand like that his interpretation of the Nine Inch Nails right. song yeah um, Rich Frame just said it would have cost too much money but he, he regrets not having him there but um, right. Merle Haggard came through and yeah it was it was everybody I think on one page we got a, a picture of uh, suicidal tendencies and Katie Lane <laughs> which is another very far apart right and Rich Rich. Uh, said that they think they did every genre except for opera. Opera. Okay. And they had stand-up comedy there. So, yeah. You know. So give, given that range of styles, are there bands who became associated with the club that you, that you thought of as, like, that's their home base? Well, I know there's lots of artists that really love the place, like George Thorogood loved it. Oh. And um, uh, who else can you think of? Um, as far as national bands, Red Hot Chili Peppers, yeah. um um, Reverend Horton Heat, um, and of local or- artists, of course, uh, the biggest one is probably The Urge. They played there um, over 100 times. Over 100 so, times? Yeah. Yes. So that's an, an, also in that category of local band who made good, 
right? Right, right. Yeah. Well, we have we have a little piece of of that. Um, let's listen to this. is This is the urge performing. She don't care. Back in 1993, we might have to pause for another in studio dance break, like in the first. <laughs> I'm ready. So I can picture oh, several hundred pogoing bodies oh. right mm-hmm. now during that, it was, right? It was right. so jam-packed in there when we saw the urge. Uh, I, I don't think you saw him there. She saw him at Kennedy's. Right. But when I went, I mean, the place sold a thousand. There was probably 1,400 people there and just sweaty. I mean, just covered in sweat when you left the place and just fun the whole night. It was just great, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was down in Laclede's Landing. What? What was that's a neighborhood that's gone through all kinds of changes. What was it like at the height of Mississippi Nights? Oh, it was great. Uh, we we included a little graph of all the bars uh, down there on the landing. I think the the pageant kind of messed it up a little bit, but the landing. I mean, uh, I remember very. I remember going down there and having twenty seven dollars, and I could go to six clubs. Mm. You know, it was mm-hmm. just it was just fun. You know, and you mean I, the pageant just drew some of that some of that business a over little to bit. the loop. Yes. Yeah. It did, and the the landing was going starting to go in a different direction anyway, and uh, what direction is that? The big corporate direction. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, when the uh, the um, casino came along. The okay. casino came along, and we get questions all the time. Why did they tear down the building? That was another reason why I wanted to write the book. So buy the book and read that chapter because it's very complicating why they tore it down. You know, well, it, it can be boiled down though to to the casino really. Well, um, it was, but uh, they had a plan uh, to for a second phase for the casino. They were going to build uh, condominiums and retail spaces down there. And we think that that's what Mississippi Nights was supposed to be. But 2008 hit and the uh, financial recession hit. So uh, that didn't happen. So what's in this spot now? Uh, it's a it's a parking lot. <laughs> An empty parking lot. But uh, Sundeckers mm-hmm. is down the street. That building has been uh, standing there since probably 1850. So that's still down there. Um, they could they could still do something with the landing. Uh, Stacy and I went down there and um, looked around, and um, they, they they could fix it up and you know right. But the building was actually taken down for a development that didn't happen. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's sad. <laughs> but I, I still think that if they want to put some money into it, they could you know make it good again. I, um, I guess right now the place with all the clubs is the Grove on Manchester. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still won't have the feel as uh, the landing did in the um, 80s and 90s. Right. Um, it was great. Mississippi Nights was lightning in a bottle. They can't recreate what they had. I, it was great. <laughs> I, I do want to ask, though, about the, the current scene. I mean, how healthy is the live music scene in St. Louis right now? It's a little strange. Uh, COVID did kind of ruin it a little bit. A lot of clubs, uh, there's there's empty clubs that are waiting to reopen. Um, I, I think it's pretty strong. It's just... It's just odd. It's been a strange cycle of clubs closing and new ones opening, and it seems like they're moving further and further out from the city also. That's a good point, yeah. And, and a lot of those venues are you know, 
investment groups are getting some money together and and building it as a as a business venture, as opposed to maybe you know just a, a fan of the scene who wants to invite bands over to play in the. It basement. just seems like right. the uh, the cover bands are the ones that are doing the best uh, in St. Louis. Um, it's just a, it's a different atmosphere, and even uh, national touring acts aren't touring as much anymore. Yeah. So uh, as you know, Mississippi Nights would have a show every single day. You know, p- places like the Pageant are lucky to have you know maybe two or three a week at this point, I guess. Right. I and know. a lot of this was also the era of the of the like four or five band bill too, right? Right. And there, there would the be more. There were, you know, three or like Alice in Chains would be with Extreme. You don't kind of see that too much anymore. Right. That rider must have had a lot of hair care products. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was great, and uh, we're, we're happy with the book and very proud. And um, it, it is. You know, people are having memories, and it's all positive. We're getting a lot of wonderful feedback. I did make one mistake. There was a band called Big Fun that played there, what, 400 times? Over 400 times. And the bass player I forgot to add in the book, and I feel awful about that. His name is Kim McKinney, and we love him. That's that's we made a couple other mistakes in the book, but I really right. feel bad about that because he's such a great guy. The, the band had so much turnover, we forgot to in- include him. He was one of the uh, long-standing members. So we love you, Kim, and uh, we, <laughs> I want to send you flowers. Okay. <laughs> well, to, to one last thing, what what makes a good venue? What what as concert goers yourself, what are you looking for? What makes it click for you? <laughs> that's tough because I'm a heavy metal guy and sometimes the worst venues are my favorite <laughs> but uh sound uh, sound quality is really important and that that feeling that you get the connectedness with the band and the rest of the audience which is often lacking in some of the venues we have now. I'm going to one I've never been to tonight I'm going to the factory okay and then I'll give you my review on that um uh, uh, people tell me it's a, just a larger pageant so we'll see so, well. we might, how long do we have to wait for that book? Uh, for the what? For that book. Oh, uh, people want me to write another book, and I say, well, if you want to write a creepy crawl book, I will help you, but I am not writing another <laughs> venue book. I have all the creepy crawl stuff, so if you want to contact me, yeah. I have everything, but I'm not going to write it. Okay. There. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, this one's just been out for a week now, so we're taking it one Savor step it. at a time. I've, yeah. I've been asked it like six times. Yes. Yeah. We'll, well, we'll see. This has we'll been see. terrific. We're, we're talking with, with Garrett Enloe and Stacey Enloe. The book is well, – I have it here, but let's hear it from the author. Mississippi Nights. A the, History of the Music Club in St. Louis. And one more little tidbit uh, as, as, we, as we go out here. Uh, they Might Be Giants. Yeah, they played created there a, lot. a song about about this uh, venue, Mississippi Nights. So let's hear a little of that as we uh, as we cruise into the sunset here. You're listening to St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. I've been to Cicero's, to Pops, the pageant to Point Fest, but nothing is From the biggest pile of broken glass that nothing is like Mississippi nights. No, nothing is like Mississippi nights. 
Today's episode was produced by Alex Hoyer, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.